Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to Acts chapter 4. As we start a new chapter today, Acts chapter 4, we're going to look at the first 12 verses in a Bible study that I've entitled, Religion Hates the Gospel. Religion Hates the Gospel. And what I mean by religion is that man-made system, systems of rules and layers of complexity that hold people back from Jesus. And we'll see it played out for us in the text today of a group of people that have taken the simplicity of the gospel and actually have become enemies of the gospel. And religious systems and religious people truly are enemies of the simplicity of the gospel. And it's important that we stay simple and allow the Holy Spirit to use us, especially in difficult times, because everything is not good for the believer. Everything's not great. Everything's not perfect. I know that many of you already know that by your life's experience, but it's good to be reminded, even for those of you experiencing very hard things today, very difficult things. And you stand there, you sit there, and you think, you know, I've served the Lord, and I've given Him my life, and I've dedicated myself, and I've turned away from my past. And you begin to process where you are in life, and then you say, but I'm still suffering And you may, very wrongly, but you may begin to blame God. You begin to say, well, look what I deserve. Look at who I am. But everybody suffers, believers and unbelievers alike. Truly, believers have another layer of suffering. You could say it this way, believers suffer more. Because with even the normal, regular things, There is an addition to those sufferings in the spiritual realm. Now that you follow Jesus, we call that spiritual warfare. Things get much harder. Even the simplest things can become very difficult because there's a battle going on for your mind, a battle going on for your, your loyalty, a battle going on for your commitment in following Jesus. You know, we do live in an incredible time in history We live in a tremendous country with great freedoms, experiencing wonderful prosperity. We get to see the gospel go forth with power and effectiveness, but not everyone experiences the same thing. Not every country is experiencing the blessings of God. Not every country is experiencing prosperity. Not everyone. And just like we've seen so far in the book of Acts, It seems to be a truly open door for the gospel. Everything seems to be going exactly as you would expect. And then chapter four, then spiritual warfare, then resistance. As you see in verse one, now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed, that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody 
until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. More and more people are getting saved. You'll remember the man that was sitting at the gate in the temple. He gets healed. A lot of attention is drawn to him. Peter preaches the gospel. More people are coming, and it's an amazing time for the gospel, except not everyone's happy. So you see in verse 1, you've got the priest, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees came upon them. And there's a progression here. Not only in verse 1 do they come upon them, but secondly, in verse 2, they're greatly disturbed. Then in verse 3, they, are, they laid hands on them, and then they put them in custody in verse 3. They arrested them for the gospel. They took them away. The, the religious leaders of the day were very unhappy with the preaching of the gospel. The crowds are growing to the thousands. God is giving favor with his word. And as Peter is preaching in the temple, there are those that are loving the message and there are also those that are hating it. And we do step back and are a little shocked and surprised at the animosity or where the animosity is coming from. It's from these religious people. If you don't, if you don't know the depth of who they are, you would expect them to cooperate with everything that they're currently preaching, everything that they're doing. They're taking, they're taking care of the temple. They're giving spiritual direction to the people. They're making decisions for the religious health of Jerusalem, of Israel, and they're upset. Well, you could say that they're motivated by the devil himself. You you could see this on the spiritual realm where God is making progress and the devil wants to resist it at every turn. And so here the enemy, he's not pleased with what's happening. Why? Well, because there's a spiritual warfare going on for the souls of men. Just like the people you're praying for right now, the people you're sharing with, the progress you might be making, there is always resistance. There's an open door, and then there's great resistance. You should expect it. It's, it's funny, isn't it? When we do walk through a great open door, when we do step out in obedience, and then when we do face resistance, we're kind of shocked by it. Even though we've been told over and over again, there's a battle, there's warfare. It, it seems like every single time we're still shocked and we're still surprised. We get to a place where we just think, you know, I've been doing this long enough. I should be able to skip out on the warfare. The exact opposite is really true. The more progress you make, the more resistance you experience. The more open doors you walk through, the more battles you find yourself in. It would really do you well and me well to be hanging out with older saints Now, I don't necessarily mean only in age. However, in order to walk with older saints, you know, those that have been through a few battles, those that have survived a few difficult things, those that have been able, maybe even been been beaten and battered, but got back up and stood by the grace of God. We need men and women like that in our lives so that we don't become bitter in the difficulties in our current life. We need to hear, hear stories of victory, we, we need to hear testimonies of those that have been through things so that when we hear it and it sounds like something we're going through, we can have hope and encouragement that God was faithful then and God will be faithful now. So we need those men and women in our lives. We need to seek them out, develop new friendships, 
so that we can hear the stories of God's victory. Why? Because we overcome by the blood of the lamb and what? The word of our testimony. And God is working a testimony out in your life right now. And someone once said, there are no testimonies without tests. It just doesn't come any other way. That's where they're at. Now Peter and John, they had all this accolade. Oh, you're great, you're great. But now they're thrown in jail. Trial after trial. The devil just doesn't like progress. He doesn't like families changed. He doesn't like someone taking a stand for what's right, repenting of their sins, and forever changing. He doesn't like that. And you'll see these same things in your life. Now notice again in verse 1, we have the captain of the temple. We have the Sadducees. We have some of the priests, it says, came upon them. And I want to draw this out for you really briefly because the people you would expect to give spiritual direction unfortunately don't. And there were two primary groups to be concerned with. There were quite a few, the priests, the scribes. When they're, met, when they're mentioned together, they're kind of mentioned in the same group of being antichrist, of being you know, very religious and not very spiritual at all. But I want to explain two groups to you, uh, for some of you by way of review, but it's important to be reminded. The first group is known as the Pharisees. And you'll remember them, they were very active against the ministry of Jesus. They were the primary group that was coming against Jesus Christ. It's super surprising because the Pharisees started out very conservative and very loyal to the scriptures. You could even say that our approach today to the word of God and our commitment to the word, our commitment to take it literally, to not add to it, take away from it, would be very similar to how the Pharisees started. They were very committed to the Old Testament, to retain the orthodoxy and preserving it. And yet they were the enemies of Jesus, unhappy about his teachings, not pleased with his followers. They despised the purity and the authority of Jesus. They're not mentioned much in the book of Acts because I think many of the Pharisees got saved and there was tension and difficulty. And you'll see that as we study through the book of Acts. No, the group that came against the church was not the Pharisees, but here we see them, the Sadducees. The Sadducees. These were those that were responsible for the major persecutions against the church. They were the rich, wealthy ruling class dominant, highly influential religiously, and also a very strong political force in Israel. It was with the Sadducees and really this group of religious rulers that politics and religion were intertwined together. And so you never really knew if it was a spiritual decision or a political decision or a combination of the two. They just left their simplicity. They, they never received the Messiah to begin with. All of the high priests were of the Sadducees, wealthy landowners, loyal not to God, but to Rome, and wanted no disruption in their calm and comfortable lives. But the main thing that really marked the Sadducees uh, theologically was they didn't believe in the supernatural. So they didn't believe in miracles and angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection, and that's what gets Peter and John in trouble here. What are they preaching? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
So it inflames this group, and then when one group gets inflamed, they all get inflamed. Notice now in verse 5, it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, so again, you could just talk about the religious elite, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, as many of were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together in Jerusalem. When they set them in the midst, they asked him, by what power and what name have you done this? Let's pause here. Mentioning Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, and John, I think it was Chuck Swindoll that said, these were the power brokers of the unseen. The Sadducees were more visible. The, those that ran the temple were more visible. But these political appointees, they, they had a spiritual office, but they had no spiritual life. They were like the ones that kind of pulled the strings behind the scenes. Uh, I think Chuck Swindoll, he said that they were the mafia of the first century. So here they are standing above with the outward religious leaders, the hidden religious leaders, you know, the, those that were pulling the strings, and they're asking them, you know, what power, what name? Who said you could do this? Or you could even translate it, who do you think you are? And coming against them, who do you think you are? Now remember back in verse two, they're greatly disturbed. Let's just ask the question, why? Why are they greatly disturbed? At least three reasons. There's at least three things they are upset about. Number one, they are disturbed, or you could say offended theologically. They're offended theologically. The truth of God's word has come against their religious teachings. And if you've ever shared with someone who's morally upright, very religious, and you begin to compare their beliefs with the Bible, you'll experience the same thing. They'll be upset with you. They, they, they'll say things like, I was born this way. I was taught this way. This is what I grew up in. I was born this way. This way I'm going to die because they don't want to move theologically. They don't want to move on what allowing the Bible to dictate their life, but rather they'll allow a system or a person to dictate their life. So they were upset theologically. Secondly, they were upset practically. There's a practical part to this. Seeing so many thousands get saved threatened their oppressive control. So practically, they've got to do something about it. Their life is being disrupted. Their religion that they invented and they created to control the people is being undermined by the truth. Because that's always the way it'll be. Truth will always decimate a man-made religious system. Always. And it's sad. Now that they're seeing their influence erode, they rise up. And then thirdly, they're offended personally. They take, they're taking this personally. They're taking it personally because they're still probably reeling from the encounter they had with Jesus when he was rebuking them back in Matthew 22. And now they thought they took care of Jesus and his followers are doing the same thing. And they're enraged. And you know, as you look at these three things though, I think it's important to realize that when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, when you're born again, when you repent and commit to follow Jesus, he takes care of all these things in your life, every single one of them. He, he begins to minister to you on these levels so you won't be offended there anymore. A personal relationship with Jesus, living out the simple gospel, all these things are taken care of. For example, in Christ, he gives you a true 
bona fide theological foundation to live your life. You may not consider yourself very theological. You, you may look at yourself and you go, I don't know much of the Bible, Ed, and I don't know much about God. But what you do know, God is laying a foundation for you. Every time you read the Bible, greater foundation. Every time you pray, greater foundation. And God helps you with that. Secondly, God will begin to clear up the practical things in your life, working from the inside out. All of the activity, the drunkenness, the partying, the womanizing, all of those things are, beginning, are being taken care of from the inside out. What you think in your mind, how you deal with others, practically God begins to work in your life. And then thirdly, personally, he begins to restore relationships, brings reconciliation, brings a comfort. He enables you to forgive others. Instead of being greatly disturbed, the born-again believer is greatly blessed. And you don't have to be upset with everyone all the time. You can live in the freedom that the Lord has given you. So they bring him there, and you can consider this the Supreme Court of Israel. The Supreme Court of Israel. That's the, the best combination or description I can think of is if you were brought, you were out down at Southlands sharing the gospel, they, people saw it, they got upset with you, and they took you all the way to Washington, D.C. and stood you before the Supreme Court, and their life, your life is in their hands. That's where they're at. And what are they answering for? They're answering for something very simple. They're preaching and teaching the gospel. That's what they're in trouble for. That's what got them in trouble. Now, wouldn't that be a great testimony for you? Of all the things that have gotten us in trouble in life, wouldn't it be nice just to be in trouble for preaching the gospel? Let's just be in trouble for preaching the word of God, loving people into the kingdom. That's where Peter and John here. And their life is literally in their hands. Which, by the way, is a good time to pause and remind you through the book of Acts, the primary ministry of the church, the primary ministry of the church, it's two things, preaching and teaching. That's it. That's what God has placed the church on the earth for today. Among the many other things we get to be a part of, all of the humanitarian help, all of the help with racial tensions, all of the difficulties with false teachings and all of the things that some would go into politics to help, all of those things must come from the essence and the primary function of the church, preaching and teaching. Preaching, and there's a difference between the two. Preaching is for unbelievers. Preaching is for unbelievers. That's why if you happen to be in a church, if you happen to be in a church that is primarily a preaching church, but you're a believer, you aren't built up very much. Like you keep hearing the same gospel message over and over. You need to get saved. You, need, you start to feel condemned. Like maybe I'm not saved. I'll get saved this week. Maybe I'm not saved. I'll get saved this week. And then if it's not you and your salvation, then there'll be some message of why aren't you bringing any people to church so they can hear the message. And it's just a very condemning thing when you have a ministry of preaching to believers. Why? Preaching is for unbelievers. Preaching is to share the hope and the love of Jesus Christ with the lost and dying world. But once a person is born again, what you and I need is teaching. That's the only way you'll grow. It's the only way you'll be edified. The only way you'll grow up in Christ is to be taught the word of God. You, you and I must receive teaching so that we might grow in the grace of Jesus Christ. We might become fully mature. 
Now, sometimes teaching comes through the gift of pastor teacher, like you're receiving it right now. But that's not the exclusive way of teaching. There are other godly men and women in the body of Christ that teach in various ways, various groups. But do you know, you don't even need a teacher. Because when you open up your Bible, you have you, the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit is your teacher. The Holy Spirit will confirm to you as you yield yourself to him what the word of God says. So that when you do your devotions, and you may not you know, get up in the morning, seven o'clock, okay, God, sit down. You have an empty chair there. Be my teacher. Here, I have my Bible. Go ahead. It, I know you just get up in the morning. You're really quick, but you want to do your devos. You open up your Bible. Let me tell you something. Let me show you. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter three, would you? 2 Timothy chapter three. Because when you open up the word, every single time you open up the Bible, this happens. Part of it happens, all of it happens, but every single time you open the word, this happens. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, which makes sense why the mission of the church is to preach and teach. It makes sense when you see the work of the Holy Spirit with his word. Verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. Let's pause there. Four things. Four things you can expect when you open the word. Number one, doctrine, or we would say right teaching. But another way of thinking of this is whenever you open up the Bible, the Bible will tell you what's right. That's why a lot of people don't open the Bible because they don't want to know what's right. But the Bible is, will teach you what's right. Secondly, it will also be for reproof. Now, reproof means to be corrected or to be strongly told what's wrong. And that's another reason why people don't read the Bible because they don't want to be told they're wrong. But the Bible will teach you and me where we're wrong. So number one, it'll teach us what's right. Number two, it will teach us what's wrong. And then notice thirdly, it will be for correction. Now, that's the grace and mercy of our Father who will not only tell us what's right or wrong, but if there is anything wrong, he'll tell us how to make it right. That's what correction is. Correction is learning how to make wrong things right. Of course, the difficulty is it's usually very personal. It's in our lives. And nobody wants to be told they're wrong. Nobody wants to be told. But man, we need it. And then we need to be told how to make it right. And then finally notice, for instruction in righteousness. And that is how to stay right. Instruction in righteousness is how to continue to live rightly. So anytime you open the Bible, even now, anyone listening to this is receiving one, two, three, or all of these through this text. Why? Verse 17, what's the end game? That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's the significance of teaching. And this is what they're in trouble for. And this is what religion doesn't like. Religion doesn't like the word. For so many years, the Bible was actually kept from people. The Bible was kept from people and, and they were told, just go to the priest He'll tell you what it means. But when the priest is corrupt and they don't have the Bible, then what's going to happen? 
the whole thing's going to be corrupt. And for many years, we know them as the dark ages. The church languished without the word. And even out of the dark ages, we still have, we still have that mentality today. Religion says, you don't need to go to God. Come to me. I just want you to reject that anytime someone tells you to do that. You don't follow man. You don't follow some prophet. You don't follow someone who says, I have all the answers. They don't. They're not telling you the truth. You need to follow Jesus and collectively we'll serve him together. So here, notice in verse 8, this is an answer to that question. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he's been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you today. If you'd like to write in your Bibles, just write next to that boldness. His life is on the line. He's got an option here. He, he could really try to wiggle out of this because after all, if he, if he wiggles out of this, he could preach the gospel more. No, he's just gonna tell the truth and commit his life to the Lord. He's just gonna tell the truth and he says, it's by the name of Jesus, that's it. Not only that, verse 11, he takes an Old Testament scripture and applies it to them. What was that scripture? The stone which was rejected by you builders. Don't miss that word. You guys rejected Messiah. You rejected Jesus. The one that you rejected, he's still healing. He's still alive. He's become the chief cornerstone. And then he summarizes, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Why was Peter so bold? Because in verse eight, it says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. So important, church, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I know you received the Holy Spirit when you were born again. Many of you have asked for the baptism of the Holy Spirit as we were studying through the book of Acts. But this is an ongoing filling. And I think we make a mistake sometimes when we think of the filling of the Holy Spirit like a glass of water, even though that can be an, another illustration at another time. But we think of it like a glass of water. You know, if the water, if my glass is already filled, what do I need more filling? Well, I mean, I can answer that. You would want more feeling overflowing so it's just constant in your life. But instead of thinking of a glass, I want you to think of under the influence. I want you to think of being filled with the Spirit is under the control or under the influence. And you say, Ed, where would you get that illustration? In the book of Ephesians. Remember what the Bible says? It says, don't be drunk with wine, which is in excess, but what? Be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. So the comparison of being filled with the Spirit there is in comparison to being drunk with wine. And when a person is drunk with wine or any drug or any narcotic, they are then what? Under the influence. They're under the influence. He says there's a better influence to be under. There, there is a, a better choice than, than hiding behind alcohol or drugs. Or, you know, we use that phrase drunk with a lot of, a lot of things, you know. People can be drunk with, with celebrity. They can be drunk with wealth. They can be under the influence of a lot of things. But if you want to stand like Peter, and we want to stand in difficult times, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, you're going to walk into something tomorrow at work. 
ask the Lord to fill you with his spirit. You've got a hard family conversation coming up, ask God to fill you with his Holy Spirit. You, you have fear and anxiety in your life. You, you have difficulties. Like, like you are like the psalmist today. And you're drenching your couch with tears. Ask the Lord to fill you with his Holy Spirit. Be in the control. Whatever you're going to face, it's better to be faced in the Spirit than in the flesh. Because the flesh is going to lead nowhere. It's going to lead to destruction. You want to walk forward in the boldness that God has given to you. And that will come through the power of his Holy Spirit. It's encouraging because, you know, God will have us step out in faith, give us an impression, give us a desire, and then we're not sure what we should do. I'm sure that Peter was thinking just like he did with the, with the man that was lame. You know, he's got these thoughts going in his mind and he's like, I don't know if this is from the Lord or not. I'm not sure. And, and that's, that will hinder us from just taking a step of faith. Like, like for example, if, if you're here today and you, you would say, you know, Ed, I think I have, you come up after service and you say, you know, Ed, I think I have a, a desire to go help the homeless. But, but you're not really sure what to do or how to do it. And then you're probably, you're also not sure whether it's from the Lord or not. So you come up and you're going to ask me the question, Pastor, I don't know if it's from the Lord. Can you tell me? Well, I'm going to tell you right now so you don't have to come up. You ready? I want you to turn the question around and just ask this. And this could be applicable to anything on your heart right now. You can just ask this. Do you think the desire to help the homeless came from the devil or from God? So just answer it. Where do you think that would come from? From God. So now there's your answer. Go do it. And if you would just simplify and say, hey, the Bible says when you delight yourself in the Lord, what? He will give you the desires of your heart. And to help the homeless, yeah, it's from the Lord. How to do it, what God wants to do exactly, we don't know, but you won't know until you take a step of faith. Step out and do it. Step out and begin to pray as you see. Begin to pray when you watch the news. Begin to pray and God will begin to well up in you desires and directions to help. You can apply that question all around. So is this from the devil? Because does it have the marks of the devil? Does it want to kill, steal, and destroy people's lives? Well, I don't want to be a part of that. That's not from the Lord. But, but does, does it want to restore? Does it want to reconcile? Does it want to help? Does it want to serve? I want to be a part of that. I think that's from the Lord. And so then I want to step out by faith, discovering what God has for me. And here he is filled with the Holy Spirit and he just tells them. He turns another, so much in this text, but he turns this whole situation into an opportunity for the gospel. Don't forget, he's arrested He's in custody. His life is on the line. He's got all these religious leaders looking down on him, 70 plus one, much bigger than our Supreme Court. Like all these guys have the power of life and death. And what does he do? They ask him the question and he turns the question into an opportunity for the gospel. Whose name did you do this? What power? Oh, you want to know? Jesus. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Oh, the one that you crucified the one that you rejected, it's him. And by the way, there's no other name given under heaven that a person must be saved than the name Christ Jesus. That's who healed this man. And he laid before them the narrow path of salvation. And you know, the path to salvation 
is very narrow. We would do a great disservice to God if we diminished the narrow path to salvation in any way that God himself has laid down for us. You may, if you may hear it in a more uh, terms of slang, we should never water down the gospel. But I prefer to use, I don't want to diminish the requirements that God has placed for a person to be saved. And that upsets folks. That upsets quite a few people to hear Jesus say that he's the only way, the only truth, and the only life. No one comes to the Father except through him. That, that disturb, disturbs people. And rightly so, I believe Jesus came to disturb the status quo. But we would be in great error if we tried to water down the requirements for a person to be saved. There is a very narrow way to salvation, and it's only through Jesus. Which I can hear people saying, wait a minute, pastor. What about all those other people that are following different religions? What about them? Doesn't everybody get in? Doesn't everybody get to God? And you'll hear that phrase, right? All roads lead to God. Have you guys heard that phrase? You might be a little surprised by my response, but I actually agree with it. I agree that all roads lead to God. Any life choice a person makes will find its end in the presence of God. But let me clarify before anybody runs out and go, what's happened to this guy? Let me clarify. While all roads lead to God, not all roads lead to salvation. Not all roads lead to the forgiveness of sin. You see, the roads apart from Jesus leading to God will lead to eternal judgment. Yes, there is a real heaven and there is a real hell. And I know that there will be these objections and just, I can't believe it, Ed. I can't, I can't believe a God that would send so many people to hell. Just adjust your thinking a little bit, just a little bit here. Please hear me out. This could be you. I could be talking directly to you. Just hear me out. People are not sent to hell. It's a choice that they make. It's a choice. Even today, as you've heard about the love of Jesus Christ, if you resist that love, it's your choice. There are consequences to choice. There, there is eternity to be gained in the presence of God by repenting of your sins, turning your life away from sin and receiving the forgiveness of Jesus. There's a, there's a consequence to that. That's eternity with God. But there's also a consequence to rejecting God. For those that want to advocate for everyone in a different religion or people that don't want to go to heaven, I just understand they, they're the, the, the folks that will be in hell don't want to go to heaven. You talk to them right now. They don't want it. And if that's the condition they die in, they're going to receive what they want. You, see, you share the gospel, I don't believe in God. They don't want heaven. You share the gospel, I don't believe in your Bible. They don't want heaven. You, you can't tell me how to live. You can't preach at me, pastor. And on and on the list goes. The, the majority of people, they don't want to go to heaven. But wait, Ed, what about these other religions? They follow them sincerely. Well, in life, I think you've found by now that you can be sincerely wrong. You can have all the, the emotions and 
all of the thoughts of I'm doing this and I'm sincere in it, but you can be sincerely wrong. Buddhism will not get you eternity with creator God. Islam will not get you eternity with creator God. And you can go list after list after list after list. There's only one name. Salvation is not in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Which reminds me of the power of choice. It's a powerful thing to have free will choice. Because when you make your choices, your choices make you. When you make your choices, your choices will make you. There's something about free will that's both exhilarating and dangerous at the same time. We can choose to follow God and tune in with him, or we can choose to disobey and suffer the consequences. And in every action of life, we're confronted with a choice. We can never evade that. It's an either-or proposition. There's not a third option. It's not a fourth option. You want to choose the narrow road. That's what Jesus said. Let's end there. Would you turn over to Matthew chapter 7? Early on in his ministry, Jesus made this abundantly clear in what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7. When you get there, go to verse 13, would you? Matthew 7, verse 13. Jesus teaches us, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. And I just think of the popularity of the wide gate. The Bible says a man, a man plans his way. A way uh, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. And you want to go through that narrow gate, church. Jesus says, choose the narrow gate. It'll be difficult and it'll be tough. It won't be very popular. It'll feel like you're alone, but it's through the narrow gate that life is found. But if you choose the narrow gate, then at the same time, you also must consciously and willingly and freely choose to reject the wide gate. It does come naturally, but there will be temptations along the way, and you've got to choose to reject. You've got to reject what everybody's doing. You've got to reject what the world's into, what the popularity of the culture is, even the popularity of Christian culture and different things here and following these guys there. And just don't follow man. Stay simple. Stay in your word. Stay in prayer. We don't need to apologize for simplicity, and we don't need to apologize for the resurrection of Jesus. We just need to share it. Tell people about God's hope for them. Encouragement, even for you today. And then when it happens, and there's all kinds of pushback and warfare and difficulty, just know that you were told ahead of time it would come. Right? Jesus said in John 16, let me read it to you from the New Living Translation. He says, I have told you this 
so that you'll have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. Yes, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution and evil people and imposters will flourish and they'll deceive others and they themselves will be deceived. So choose that narrow path to follow Jesus. And we'll get the rest of this in our future studies. Father, we pray for your spirit to take your word and use it in a powerful way in any of those four ways that we read in our lives. I know that you've given me a couple things, uh, even as I taught it, that minister to my soul, encourage me in the inner man. And I pray, Father, that you would Go before us, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Help us, God, because we certainly need it in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223 or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.